Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.org. American 11, are you trying to call? Our number one is in staff, and our five is in staff. What's going on, Betty? Eddie, talk to me. Eddie, are you there? Eddie? It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Bryant Dumble. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right. Oh, oh my God. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. That, yes, that was definitely looked like it was on purpose. You're listening to episode 153 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the French seer Nostradamus and his remarkable predictions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on the Georgia Guidestones. But first... One of the most famous seers of the last millennium was Nostradamus, an enigmatic French mystic from the 1500s. He issued a book of nearly 1,000 prophecies, and they've been in print ever since. Hundreds of books have been written about him, and millions have sought to interpret his prophecies. Recently, there's been a renaissance in Nostradamus scholarship, and we may finally have the answers we need to understand what was really going on in his life and prophecies. So... Who was Nostradamus? What secret techniques did he use, and could he really foretell the future? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. All right, Jimmy, there's a lot to say about Nostradamus. So today's episode is going to be the first of two parts. And so today we'll talk about Nostradamus and look at him from the faith perspective. And then next episode, we'll go deeper and see what the reason perspective has to say about him. But first... We often start by talking about any personal connections we may have with a topic. Do do you have a personal connection to the Nostradamus topic? 
Well, as longtime listeners may know, I was raised nominally Christian, and in my teenage years, I passed through a phase where I was into the New Age movement. And during that period, I had a copy of Nostradamus's famous book, which is called The Prophecies. It contains 942 little prophetic poems, each of which is four lines long, so they're called quatrains, though I was never able to make much sense out of them. Eventually, I became a serious Christian of the evangelical stripe, and I rejected everything having to do with astrology. Since Nostradamus reportedly used astrology and other seemingly magical techniques to come up with his predictions, I thus rejected everything that had to do with him. It seemed obvious to me that what Nostradamus was doing was incompatible with the Christian faith and nobody should take him seriously. I was surprised when I became Catholic and discovered that some Catholics, including quite traditional ones, took a much more open view towards Nostradamus. For example, in 1970, the very traditional Catholic publisher Tan Books issued a small paperback by the French author Yves Dupont. It was called Catholic Prophecy, The Coming Chastisement, and it contained an entire chapter on Nostradamus. In it, Dupont wrote, I make no apologies for quoting Nostradamus. I am aware, of course, that he is not regarded very highly by some of the more educated people in this part of the world, although he enjoys considerable popularity among lovers of sensationalism. This unfortunate state of affairs has been brought about by the shameless commercial exploitation of his works. In point of fact, however, Nostradamus was an authentic seer, and in the old world, many an erudite has not deemed it beneath his dignity to spend long hours poring over his predictions. The list of lay and clerical authors who have written books on Nostradamus over the last 150 years is quite impressive. And I once knew a medical specialist of high renown, a man of great learning, now deceased, who wrote at least three books on the prophecies of Nostradamus. His familiarity with the Greek and Latin languages and with the dialect of southern France enabled him to decipher many of the most obscure of Nostradamus's coined words. Yes, I have every reason indeed to regard Nostradamus as a genuine seer. So DuPont, a traditional Catholic writing for traditionalists, thinks that Nostradamus should be taken seriously as a seer. And he regrets the way that Nostradamus's writings have been hyped and sensationalized in the popular press. What's an example of Nostradamus being sensationalized like that? The opening sound clips in this episode have already set us up for an example. Whenever a major world event happens, people who are fans of Nostradamus instantly start wondering if he said anything that predicted it, and almost invariably they conclude that he did. As soon as the 9-11 attacks occurred in 2001, emails started flashing around the world saying that Nostradamus had predicted the destruction of the Twin Towers. And, of course, we will be talking in a future episode about the 9-11 attacks and the theories connected with them. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks, Nostradamus's prophecies shot to the top of the Amazon bestseller list. I mean, it was the number one book. And five more books about him cracked the top 25 bestsellers on Amazon. One of the emails that was circulating claimed Nostradamus had predicted the attacks in these words. Two steel birds will fall from the sky on the metropolis. The sky will burn at 45 degrees latitude. Fire approaches the great new city. Immediately, a huge scattered flame leaps up. Within months, rivers will flow with blood. The undead will roam the earth for little time. It's easy to fit that to 9-11. You've got the two steel birds that sound like the two airliners used to attack the Twin Towers. 
they're falling from the sky in a metropolis, and New York City is certainly a metropolis. And in fact, it's the model for Superman's metropolis. You've got the sky burning at 45 degrees latitude, which is kind of sort of near the latitude of New York City, which is actually at 40 degrees north latitude. You've got a reference to the great new city, and New York is a great city that is new enough. It's got new in its name. You've got huge scattered flame leaping up, like when the airplanes hit the buildings. And within months, a war started, corresponding to the statement, rivers will flow with blood. The only thing that isn't easy to fit with the reference is the undead roaming the earth for a time, though that could be interpreted as a poetic reference to the survivors of the attacks or the forthcoming war. But is there reason to be skeptical of Nostradamus prophesying 9-11 with this poem? There are multiple reasons. For a start, this poem has six lines, not four. It's not a quatrain, and that immediately tells you it's a fake. It does contain material from things that Nostradamus actually wrote, but it's been re-edited and recombined to make it fit the 9-11 attacks because what Nostradamus actually wrote doesn't fit them. And this is just one example. There were other re-edits and reinterpretations of his prophecies in the days after 9-11. All right, let's get to the facts about Nostradamus himself. Who was he and when was he born? His name was Michel de Nostradam, and he was born in December of 1503 in the Provence region of France. His father's family was originally of Jewish ancestry, but his grandfather converted to Christianity about 40 years before Michel was born. His grandfather took the Christian name Pierre de Nostradam, Pierre after St. Peter, and Nostradam after the Virgin Mary, Our Lady, or Nostradam since Pierre was baptized on one of her feast days. This type of name was common among Jewish converts at the time, as it was a way of showing their devotion. Michelle's mother's family, though, was of Gentile Christian stock, and there's a legend that Michelle was educated by one or both of his grandfathers, but this appears to be untrue, as it seems that they died when he was still a baby. And how did he get his education? There's controversy about this because another legend is that he went to medical school and became a physician. You'll frequently see him referred to as a doctor. But recent historical research has shown that the truth is much more complex and interesting. He was privately educated until around 1518, the year after the Reformation began. And then at the age of 14 or 15, he was sent to the University of Avignon to read for his first degree. This was a necessary step for becoming a doctor. At the time, when you studied the seven liberal arts, you did so in two segments, which were known as the trivium and the quadrivium. In the trivium, you studied three foundational subjects, which were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And then in the quadrivium, you studied four more advanced subjects, which were arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, which included astrology. Unfortunately, Nostradam didn't get to complete his degree because the university had to close due to a plague, and we all know what that <laughs> is like. But back then, they couldn't just switch over to conducting classes remotely by Zoom, so he didn't get the first degree he'd need to become a doctor. Instead, he went to work as an apothecary. That word may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. What's an apothecary? 
Basically, an apothecary is a pharmacist in American English or a chemist in some other forms of English. Apothecaries made and distributed medications, and back then this was an unlicensed manual trade that you didn't need a degree for. As a result, doctors of the time looked down on apothecaries as imperfectly educated tradesmen. And there was some competition between the two because a lot of people would go straight to the apothecary for medicine and not bother going to a doctor. Just like people today often go straight to a pharmacy for over-the-counter medications instead of bothering with a doctor's appointment and all the expense and hassle that that involves. After all, why pay two medical professionals when you could just pay one? And why wait to get relief when you can just go pick up some aspirin or something? Back then, as far as I've been able to determine, they didn't have licensing requirements that forced you to go to a doctor first in order to get certain medications by prescription only. I could be wrong about that, but I checked and I I couldn't document mandatory prescriptions going back this far. So the doctors had to compete with the apothecaries for business, and they didn't get along that well. In fact, if you were an apothecary, you were forbidden to go to medical school and become a doctor. But Nostradam wanted to become a doctor, so he did what he could, and in 1529, he snuck into medical school. And how did that work out for him? Not very well, because he got caught immediately, apparently on the same day he registered and paid his fees. Although he had enrolled and was fully paid up as a student at Montpellier's famous Faculty of Medicine, the student registrar learned that he had been an apothecary and that he had been rude about doctors. As a result, his name was duly and angrily struck from the rolls, and we still have the rolls with his name crossed out. <laughs> and then what did he do? He went back to being an apothecary and he faced a complication because he hadn't even finished his apprenticeship and thus had not become a master apothecary. He also hadn't taken the test you were supposed to as a master apothecary. But there was a route by which he could apparently achieve that status without passing the usual exam for becoming a master. This involved serving for 12 years as an apothecary for the poor or for victims of the plague. And there's evidence that this is the route Nostradam took, working to help people during the frequent plague outbreaks that were happening at the time. After all, everybody knew that you don't want to stay in a plague-infested city if you don't have to. One piece of medical advice of the time was, get out fast, stay well away, come back late. And after having lived through a plague, I love that advice. Get out fast, stay well away, come back late. (laughs) And doctors themselves may have taken that advice because they themselves knew they didn't really have the ability to stop outbreaks of the plague. As the later French philosopher Voltaire said, the art of medicine consists in amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. At least that's how it worked back before the days of modern medicine. So actually sticking around to treat plague victims was hazard duty. And you could work your way to becoming a master apothecary by undertaking this hazardous duty. So Nostradam never became a full-fledged doctor, right? Apparently not. He is described that way in his almanacs, but it appears that's just publicity. 
despite the fact that he's often referred to as a doctor and even a plague doctor, he doesn't appear to have been more than a master apothecary. And in his writings, he denied being a doctor. So that's a legend about him. If he was an apothecary in his professional life, what was going on in the meantime in his personal life? In 1531, he got married and quickly had two children. Unfortunately, his wife and children died in 1534 because of one of the plague outbreaks. He then remarried in 1547, this time to a woman named Anne Ponsard, and together they had six kids, three sons and three daughters. Of course, he needed to make money to support his new and growing family, and he apparently wanted to do more than just be an apothecary. So one of the ways he decided to make income was by publishing almanacs, which were popular at the time. I love almanacs, but I don't think they're as popular now, and some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with that term. So what's an almanac? It's a kind of book that typically comes out every year and that contains information of a certain type. There are different sorts of almanacs, like the sports almanac containing years and years of sports scores that Biff Tannen got his hands on in Back to the Future Part 2. But that's a specialized modern kind of almanac. The kind we're concerned with here is the older, more general kind. The Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines it as a publication containing astronomical and meteorological data for a given year and often including a miscellany of other information. Almanacs were particularly popular with farmers because they contained predictions about what the weather was likely to be like during certain parts of the year, as well as information about things like when to plant and harvest crops, the phases of the moon, calendars, and stuff like that, as well as a bunch of miscellaneous but interesting information. Today, the most popular almanac of this type is known as the Old Farmer's Almanac, and I remember reading it growing up because my grandparents would have copies of it at the family ranch. I'd even buy copies of it for myself back home because it contained a lot of interesting info on different types of subjects. We'll have a link to the Old Farmer's Almanac website so you can browse it and see the kind of information that almanacs like this contain. Almanacs do contain predictions for the coming year, and some of this is astronomical, like the phases of the moon, eclipses, and things like that. It also sometimes includes astrological information and predictions, and it certainly contained astrological information in Nostradamus' day, the typical almanac would. So this is how he got his start in the public prediction-making business. When did he release his first almanac? In 1550, and to give it a more authoritative air, he Latinized his last name. Michel de Nostradam thus became Nostradamus, with the Latin us noun ending, the name he's known by today. Here's how historian Stefan Gerson describes Nostradamus's almanacs in the Penguin edition of The Prophecies. In 1550, he published his first almanac, a short and flimsy publication that contained a calendar, tables of the faces of the moon, known as ephemerides, and weather forecasts. He wrote at least one almanac per year, along with prose narratives called prognostications, which described weather patterns, epidemics, wars, and even the behavior of men with soft or bellicose temperaments for the year to come. Like his horoscopes, these publications rested on his astrological calculations of planetary conjunctions and revolutions and cosmic cycles. Nostradamus's almanacs became extremely popular, and he sold lots of copies, so he kept publishing them, sometimes two or three a year. 
The ones he published are known to have contained at least 6,338 prophecies and 11 annual calendars. Some, though by no means all, of his predictions in the almanacs were written in the form of short, four-line poems known as quatrains. Gerson explains, He adorned his almanacs with four-line predictive poems called presages or portents that he claimed to have composed out of natural instinct and poetic frenzy. Each almanac contained one portent for the whole year, one for each month, and sometimes a fourteenth one at the end. And because he had them corresponding to years, that makes them datable predictions, which we'll talk about in the reason perspective. People were fascinated by the predictions he made, and some of them started contacting him and asking him to do their own individual horoscopes. So he was gaining a reputation as an astrologer of sorts. Was astrology illegal or considered contrary to the Christian faith at the time? No, it it certainly wasn't illegal, at least not in general terms. As we mentioned, it was part of what you learned when you studied the seven liberal arts. You learned about it during the quadrivium in the astronomy astrology section. It was considered a scientific discipline at the time because the heavenly bodies obviously do have an influence on Earth. The sun, for example, helps drive the weather, and our sister planet, the moon, drives the tides. The question was, how much of an effect do the heavenly bodies have on Earth? And that was an issue that hadn't yet been worked out well because the scientific revolution hadn't occurred yet. Based on the scientific knowledge of the day, people thought that the stars and planets have more of an effect than we do. But that's a difference in degree rather than kind. We've talked in previous episodes, like episode 23 on astrology and episodes 105 and 106 on Aquinas and the occult, about how all this worked. In those episodes, we noted how some astrological ideas, like the stars rigorously determine the fates of men, were regarded as incompatible with the faith. Right. Even though great saints and doctors of the church, like St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas, thought that the stars and planets have a physical effect on the bodies of men, they don't touch our souls. As a result, they can't take away our free will. They might make a given man more prone to experiencing physical sensations of anger, like Nostradamus' predictions for the next year for men of bellicose temperament, because those physical sensations of anger come from the body. But a man still has free choice of whether he will act on those feelings or whether he'll ignore them. As a result, astrologers could only make probabilistic predictions when it comes to the actions of human beings. They couldn't make definite, infallible ones because of free will. If you wanted to know precisely what would happen, you'd need more than what astrology could tell you. Specifically, you'd need divine revelation, because from his perspective outside of time, God sees exactly what happens in every moment of history including all the free will decisions that men make. In 1517, Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation. So the Reformation was well underway by the time Nostradamus became known for his astrological forecasts. Today, many evangelicals are very opposed to astrology, but was this the case for Protestants in the 1500s? Actually, no, not in principle. Astrology was part of a standard liberal arts education, and that cut across religious boundaries. In his book, Nostradamus, How an Obscure Renaissance Astrologer Became the Modern Prophet of Doom, French cultural historian Stéphane Gerson writes, From Queen Elizabeth and Margrave Johann of Kustrin to Philip II of Spain and Pope Urban VII, 
Protestants and Catholics alike consulted astrologers in preparation for campaigns and tournaments and other such matters. Horoscopes were a source of information and an instrument of rule. They were not quite commonplace, since some questioned their veracity, but widespread nonetheless, not unlike our own financial forecasts. From a Protestant perspective, astrology would not have been seen as any more intrinsically objectionable at the time than from a Catholic one. For example, it wouldn't have been considered ruled out by the Protestant principle of sola scriptura, which holds that scripture alone is authoritative for Christian teaching and practice. While the Bible has passages that forbid worshiping the stars as gods, there are no passages that forbid using the stars to deduce what may happen in the future. In fact, when God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, Genesis 1.14 reports him as saying, Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. The stars thus could function as signs for people on earth. And a star indisputably led the Magi to find the child Jesus. It was a sign that the Messiah had been born. And by the way, for information about how to understand the Star of Bethlehem and how it fits into this subject, go back and listen to episode 23 on astrology. In any event, the Bible contains material that people could appeal to in support of astrology, and many Protestants understood it in that light. Fundamentally, though, astrology was considered something that fell primarily within the reason perspective. While some people, both Catholic and Protestant, denied that you could predict the future from the stars, even probabilistically, and they held horoscopes were worthless, most people followed the science of the day, which saw the stars and planets as having more of an influence than we would see them as having. So the issue didn't really divide along religious lines. In fact, many Protestants of the day took Nostradamus's prophecies seriously. Gerson writes, in England, diplomats and ambassadors discussed quatrains about the accession of Queen Elizabeth and the marriage between Mary, Queen of Scots, and the French heir. His predictions made it to the court and into the homes of prominent elites. Some Puritans even complained that nobles were trusting Nostradamus more than they did God. With Nostradamus's almanac selling well and his reputation as an astrologer advancing, did Nostradamus decide to take on any new projects? He did. In 1555, he published the first edition of his most famous book, The Prophecies. This volume is divided into sub-books, which are commonly called centuries. Each of the centuries was originally meant to contain 100 prophetic four-line poems or quatrains. Since there are 10 centuries in the final edition of the book, it looks like the plan was for it to be a collection of 1,000 quatrains. But for one reason or another, that didn't happen, and the 10 centuries only contain 942 prophecies. With words like century involved and numbers like 100 quatrains per century and 10 centuries in the whole book, could the prophecies be a map of the next 1,000 years from Nostradamus' time with one prophecy per year in chronological order? It's a tempting idea, but the evidence indicates that it's not the case. First, Peter Lemassurier writes, in the approved manner of the day, Nostradamus usually prefers to use his French words in their original Latin senses. In addition, many French words and phrases have changed their meanings since Nostradamus' day. Thus, in the original, the word siècle corresponds to cycle or age, not century. So, we likely shouldn't consider the subbooks as representing centuries in our sense, but cycles or ages. Second, a few of Nostradamus's prophecies actually name the year they apply to, but 
they don't fall in the right places to fit the idea that the prophecies are a chronological list. For example, one of the quatrains specifically names an event occurring in July of 1999, but it's one of the very last prophecies in the book, being found in Century 10, Quatrain 72. If the one prophecy per year theory were true, Century 10, Quatrain 72 would be 972 years in Nostradamus's future, but he obviously knew that 1999 wasn't that far ahead. It was only 444 years ahead of the first edition. Though I should mention that this prophecy wasn't in the first edition since Nostradamus added to that edition over time. Century 10 first appeared in one of the later editions. But a third reason is, and this is really the most conclusive, is the fact that in the preface of the prophecies, Nostradamus explicitly says that the work is meant to cover events up to the year 3797, which sounds like a song by Zaker and Evans. <laughs> in any event, 3797 is 2,242 years after he published the first edition in 1555. So it covers more than 2,000 years, meaning twice as many years as the 1,000 prophecies the book apparently was meant to contain. The predictions found in the prophecies thus aren't in chronological order. They don't go on a one prophecy per year basis. Okay. So then why didn't Nostradamus compose that full 1,000 prophecies? Why did he only do 942? He may have written 1,000, but we really don't know why only 942 were published. Gerson explains, The odd number of quatrains remains mysterious. We do not know whether Nostradamus intended the work to end with 942 quatrains or simply lacked the time to complete his work. It is also possible that some quatrains went astray in publishers' workshops or Less likely that he fit as many as he could in the 16-page leaves that publishers routinely used. So the missing 58 prophecies are a mystery. Besides the first edition of the prophecies coming out, another interesting and frightening event occurred in 1555. What can you tell us about that? Nostradamus was summoned by the Queen of France, Catherine de' Medici. The reason this was scary was because in his almanacs, Nostradamus had mentioned something vague but really bad happening to her husband, King Henry II of France. Now, historically, making that kind of prediction has been a really risky thing to do. Political leaders may want astrologers to tell them privately about the, you know, the coming dangers they need to watch out for. But they really, really smash down hard on the dislike button when an astrologer publicly predicts misfortunes for them because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. For example, if you predict an assassin will kill the king, it may give someone who really hates the king the idea that the stars are on his side and now is the time for him to strike. Even if you're vague and general and just say there's going to be some unspecified troubles for the royal family, it can lead people to believe that, at a minimum, the family will be distracted and in a weaker position. And that can cause a crisis of confidence about the royal family. It can even be a signal to people that the royal family will be in a weakened state. So now's the time to put your illegal and possibly treasonous plan into effect. So 
When Queen Catherine de Medici summoned Nostradamus after his prophecy of trouble for the king, he had reason to be concerned. According to one contemporary account, he reportedly expected to be beheaded once he got to court. And Catherine had a reputation as a very politically alert and powerful woman. Stefan Gerson reports, Orphaned very young, raised in Florence, Catherine de' Medici had married the French king Henri II in 1533 at the age of 14. Life at the court did not prove easy. In the courtesan, Diane de Poitiers, she faced a formidable rival for Henri's affection. Catherine devised a deft strategy. If she could not own her husband's heart, then she would win his mind and become his confidant. When Henri was away on long military campaigns, she wrote him often and fulfilled his requests. Those skills served Catherine well after Henri's untimely death in 1559. Thrust into the center of courtly life, she assumed key roles. It fell upon her to tutor the young king, govern the court, and protect the kingdom. She parlayed traditional female virtues, submissive spouse, bereft widow, devoted mother, into a position of power. All officials now reported to her. All dispatches passed by her desk. So if she wanted Nostradamus beheaded, she could definitely arrange that. What happened when he arrived? He apparently was able to explain himself successfully. In fact, Gerson reports, In 1555, Catherine had invited him to the court to provide horoscopes of her children. He stayed a few weeks, fulfilled his obligations, predicted that the queen would see all of her sons accede to the throne. A frightening prospect, for it implied that some would die. So Nostradamus didn't just report good news to her. He also privately gave her information that she would see some of her sons become king, only to see them die before she did. Despite this, she ended up becoming a kind of Nostradamus superfan and regularly consulted him in the coming years. And the fact he was now a regular royal astrologer helped further build his reputation. Did Nostradamus ever get into trouble with the authorities? Not in a serious way, though there was one occasion. In 1561, he was briefly imprisoned by the Count of Tende for having published the 1562 edition of his almanac without prior approval by a bishop. However, this seems to have been quickly cleared up, and in fact, the last page of the 1562 almanac did carry a privilege or imprimatur. How did Nostradamus end up dying? The seer had been suffering gout for some years. Gout is a painful condition that is caused by having too much uric acid in the blood, and it leads to a kind of inflammatory arthritis that causes painful swelling in the joints, and especially in the big toe, so it can interfere with a person's ability to move around. Nostradamus also apparently developed heart or kidney failure. Uh, he then got what used to be called dropsy, but is now more commonly called edema in his body. That means he started retaining fluid, so his body swelled up. And he then passed on to his reward at the beginning of July 1566 at age 62. Okay, that brings us to our theories and faith perspective. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Edward H., Donna S., Alexander F., John H., and Paul H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. 
You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.org. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about Nostradamus? From the faith perspective, we need to look at what Nostradamus was doing. Was it in line with the faith, especially as it was understood at the time, or did it conflict with the faith? From the reason perspective, we need to investigate how he came up with his prophecies, because it's not as simple as it might appear. Then we need to look at how accurate he was. Did he really have the ability to predict the future? And how can we determine that given some of the challenges we face? What can we say about Nostradamus from that faith perspective? Was what he was doing in line with the faith, especially as it was understood at the time? At least from what was publicly known, it would seem so. While there were some forms of astrology that were contrary to the faith, Nostradamus made sure he steered clear of those, or at least he presented himself as doing so. For example, we mentioned earlier a version of astrology that denied the existence of human free will. But Nostradamus believed in free will's role as part of God's design, and he mentions it in the preface to his most famous book, The Prophecies. The fact that Nostradamus was getting imprimaturs from bishops to publish his work also points in the direction of his not doing anything overtly wrong, as does the fact that he even had bishops among his clients. Nostradamus also makes it clear that he has a conscious intention to remain within the bounds of the faith. In the first edition of the prophecies, he includes a preface written to his two-year-old son, Cesar, and he warns Cesar not to get involved in forbidden occult practices that could, among other things, lead to the damnation of his soul. He also says that although he used to have a bunch of ancient books with some weird lore in them, he burned them, lest Cesar might one day be tempted, after inheriting them, to use magic to turn lead into gold or things like that. Also, in the final edition of the prophecies, there's a letter he wrote to King Henry II in which he says, I protest before God and his saints that I do not claim to put anything into writing in the present epistle which might go against the true Catholic faith, devising my astronomic calculations to the best of my ability. So he's definitely trying to stay within bounds. Finally, we can note that Nostradamus' books, neither the Almanacs nor the Prophecies, were ever placed on the Index of Forbidden Books. For listeners who may not be aware, the Index was a list of books that the Church held could be dangerous to people's faith or morals. It included things like the writings of heretics, books that advocated illegal activities, and eh, smutty books. So, unless you had a special need to read a book that was on the index, like an apologist might need to read a book by a heretic in order to refute the arguments in it, you weren't supposed to read them. 
The index was later abolished, and it doesn't exist today, but it did exist in Nostradamus's day, and his works were never placed on it, either in his own day or afterwards, despite their continued popularity down the centuries. So this is a significant argument that what he was publishing wasn't considered fundamentally contrary to the faith. You might agree or not agree with him and his predictions. You might even think it was all a big hoax. But if it was, it wasn't a heretical one. And so his book stayed off the index. How did Nostradamus go about his astrological calculations? This is a bit unclear. The first thing we should say, because the term may come up later, is that he was practicing a version of astrology known as judicial astrology. What that is gets rather technical, but suffice it to say that he was trying to do it in a way that was within the bounds of what was allowed. When it comes to method, he said he was using three different astrological methods. One, he said, was of Babylonian or Chaldean origin, and they did indeed practice astrology-like things in ancient Babylon. The second method, he said, was of Indian origin, and astrology has been popular in India for a long time. And the third was a method he said he developed himself, and he wasn't very specific about it. How likely is it that he was using the same methods practiced in Babylon and India? I don't think it's particularly likely. Today, because of modern archaeology, we've dug up like a bazillion cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia and figured out how to read them. As a result, we now have a very good understanding of how the Babylonians looked for signs in the sky. And it was very different than the way people in Nostradamus's day did astrology. As a result, I think it's very unlikely that he was doing anything like the real ancient Babylonians or Chaldeans did. He may have been doing something that he had been told was the way they did it, but I don't think it was the actual method. Something similar applies to Indian astrology. Today, we have really good communication with India, and it's very easy for us to learn about how Indian astrology works. But communications weren't nearly so good in Nostradamus's day. I mean, you couldn't just get on the phone to Mumbai or have a Skype meeting with them. And so, once again, he may have been doing something he had been told was authentic Indian astrology, but it may or may not have been. Of course, when he says he's also using his own special blend method, I think that's absolutely correct. We have good evidence that he was doing astrology differently than other European astrologers. In fact, he didn't even want to be considered an astrologer in the traditional sense. He actually attacked traditional astrologers in his writings. And rather than being called an astrologer, he preferred to be called an astrophile, that is, a lover of the stars. And it's clear that he was not practicing traditional astrology. So all the descriptions you see of him in books as being an astrologer are at least somewhat misleading. Did he attribute his prophecies exclusively to astrological calculations? No, both in the preface to the prophecies and in the letter to King Henry, he refers to a certain natural instinct that he inherited from his ancestors that assists him in making his predictions. It's not clear which ancestors he's thinking of here. He could mean that it's an instinct he inherited from his Jewish ancestors because the biblical prophets were Jewish. Or he could be thinking of other ancestors because his mother was Gentile and things like second sight are supposed to be passed down in families. 
It's also not clear precisely what kind of instinct he's thinking of. Hypothetically, you might propose that it's just a natural instinct or gift for making predictions. Kind of like you could say Sherlock Holmes could predict what a criminal's going to do. But it seems more likely that he means a preternatural instinct or gift, like second sight. In that case, since he says it's a natural instinct rather than a spiritual gift the Holy Ghost gives him, it might be considered what we today would call a psychic ability. Interestingly, he says that his hereditary gift that helps him with prophecy is going to die with him and not be passed on to his son. Does Nostradamus see God as having a role in his predictions? Yes, he adamantly says that man can't know anything about the secret things of God unless God reveals them. In the preface to his son Caesar, he writes, Considering that all human ventures come to an uncertain end, and that everything is ruled and governed by the incalculable power of God, finding our inspiration in astrological considerations, only those who are inspired by the divine spirit and the prophetic breath can predict particular things. Right, particular things. So Nostradamus doesn't think that astrological considerations are enough to be able to predict particular things reliably because of human free will. You need divine assistance. He also describes how he says God helps him. As concerns that prophetic judgment, which is rendered perfect by divine inspiration, let me explain it to you. It is this judgment that enables you to have knowledge of future things, projecting into the distance the fabulous imaginings of things to come and, under supernatural inspiration, precisely locating the particularity of places, attuning the places and dates to their celestial figures thanks to a virtue, a power, and a faculty divine possessed of hidden properties. So it sounds like first Nostradamus gets a psychic impression of things in the future, and then supernatural assistance guides him in figuring out how to precisely locate the things that he has viewed in space and time by astronomical calculations. Elsewhere, though, he says things that makes it sound like it can go the other way around. That is, he may first do astrological calculations to get a general idea of what will happen in the future, and then he remotely views the events to get the details. Either way, it sounds like a combination of astrological calculation combined with psychic ability under the assistance of divine guidance. If Nostradamus thought he was being divinely guided, did he regard himself as a prophet or as being infallible in his predictions? No, and he's quite firm about this. Both in the preface for his son and the letter to King Henry, he expressly says that he does not want to be called a prophet. He also does not claim to be infallible, and he recognizes he can be wrong. In the preface, after discussing the help God gives him in making predictions, he writes, Not that I arrogate for myself the name or function of a prophet, but that of a mortal man possessed of revealed inspiration, whose senses are no less distant from heaven than his feet from the ground. I can err, fail, be deceived, and there is no greater sinner on this earth than I, subject to all the afflictions of man. So he's claiming a degree of divine assistance, but not the full-blown kind that the biblical prophets had. This would be similar to how modern visionaries have motions of divine grace in their souls that can give them supernatural information, but they can also make mistakes, which is part of why private revelations don't have the same status as public revelation that we find in the biblical prophets. 
Did Nostradamus always use the same method? It appears not. He apparently had several things he would do. For example, he sometimes refers to getting information from an angelic spirit from God, and sometimes he would seek answers in dreams. And there's nothing in principle wrong with either getting info from an angel or from getting information from God or an angel in a dream. Both of those happen in the Bible, and both happen in private revelations today. Was there anything questionable about the way Nostradamus tried to do these things? Yeah, even if something is fine in principle, you can still do it in a superstitious way. That's something that Aquinas talked about, as we discussed in episode 106 on Aquinas and the Occult. And you can look at part of what Nostradamus did and say he was being superstitious. I'll describe this, but first I should point out that this is about an element of his practice that was different than the predictions you find in the prophecies. He doesn't describe using these techniques when making the predictions, but in doing other things. For example, one of the superstitious practices involves the use of a special ring and also evaluating special rings that other people had. He writes about it in letter number 41 of his collected correspondence. As background to help the reader ex- understand this letter, Le Messurier writes, The original letter seems to have been delivered personally by the seer to Francois Berard, lawyer and procurator fiscal to the papal legation at Avignon, a keen alchemist and would-be disciple and assistant of Nostradamus, on or about September 10th, 1562. It concerns, among other things, a golden magic ring that the latter had recently acquired. As a supposed magician in his own right, Nostradamus naturally had such a ring of his own, in his case, one inset with Cornelian, subsequently bequeathed to his son Caesar, and its purpose, like Berard's, was to help bestow on him power to summon up the spirits and to assist the general alchemical magnum opus to say nothing of impressing the ignorant. I love that last remark Le Messurier makes, that Nostradamus had his special ring with the carnelian in it to help with his alchemical work and to say nothing of impressing the ignorant. Love that. (laughs) Now, alchemy involved the study of physical materials and how to do things like transmute one element or one substance into another. The holy grail of alchemy was turning base metals into precious ones like lead into gold. Unfortunately, alchemists never figured that one out because you'd need to either start with a radioactive material or use something like a cyclotron if you want to turn one chemical element into another, and they didn't know about radioactivity or have cyclotrons back then. But there was nothing wrong with alchemy in principle. In fact, it evolved into the modern science of chemistry. But it is superstitious to try to use a ring to summon angelic spirits to help you with your alchemy. Angels don't come on demand that way, and I doubt very much that Nostradamus ever contacted a spirit, good or bad, in this way. I think it was much more likely to be his imagination. But he did think that he was in communication with one, because when his lawyer friend asked him to evaluate a ring that the lawyer had bought, Nostradamus wrote, Be advised, therefore, that for nine nights in succession, I have now sat from midnight until about four o'clock, both with my brow crowned with laurel and wearing the sky-blue stone, and have wrung out of that good spirit everything I can about your ring. Therefore, having plucked a swan's quill, for he thrice refused a goose one, and with the spirit dictating to me, as though carried away by a poetic frenzy, I launched myself into the following lines. 
And then he has a poem that the spirit helped him write. And there are a few elements of superstition in all this. I don't think that wearing laurel branches on your head will really help you get information from an angel. And I don't think that an angel is going to care whether you're writing with a quill from a swan or a goose. So these strike me as superstitious elements. What about the way Nostradamus used dreams? Here we have another mix of things that are fine with things that are superstitious. In the same letter, he talks about how he tried to use dreams to get help from his guardian angel for his work with alchemy. The superstitious part is that before going to sleep, he put laurel boughs on his pillow and he put a wreath of laurel and periwinkle on his head. And I don't think an angel is going to care about that. So I think that's superstitious. But he then said a prayer to his guardian angel, and here he's on much better ground. He records the prayer as follows. Angel who art my guardian and who guideth me in piety, grant that on matters touching the transformation of natural substances, I may prophesy according to the courses of the stars. Grant these things, I beseech thee, through the friendly silences of the moon, and through these shadows as Mars shines at his rising. Grant them, I say, for the sake of the most good Christ and his holy virgin mother, and of Michael the Archangel, my invincible patron. Above all, grant that by your guidance I may increase both the resources and the favor of nature, transform with mercury the basis metals, even the slightest traces, into the veritable solar image that is gold, and make this gold itself potable for the prolongation of the lives of emperors, kings, and the greatest princes. Grant also that these metals, along with the gold, may flow easily through the tubes of the still without any of these liquids evaporating and without the gold separated both from the watery and from the earthy sinking to the bottom, but that all may be distilled at once by subtle artifice. So he got a couple of astrological ideas in there about the moon and Mars having an effect on his alchemical work, which would be mistaken. But he's basically asking his guardian angel for help with his alchemical work so he can be a successful alchemist and do good things, like help prolong the lives of kings and princes. And he's asking that this be done to honor Christ and the Virgin Mary and St. Michael the Archangel. And there's nothing wrong with saying a prayer to ask your guardian angel to help you do your work so you can benefit others, which from a Catholic perspective means that you're asking the guardian angel to pray to God for these things, to intercede for you, and then God may either help you directly or authorize the angel to help you on God's behalf. We've been evaluating Nostradamus from the perspective of how the faith was understood in his day. What would we say about what he was doing in light of the church's current understanding? I think most of the analysis we've been giving still holds. The most notable thing that's happened since his time is the marginalization of astrology, as we've learned more about natural science and the effects the stars and planets do and don't have. Thus, today, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, Paragraph 2116. All forms of divination are to be rejected. Recourse to Satan or demons conjuring up the dead or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. Consulting horoscopes, astrology, palm reading, interpretation of omens and lots, the phenomena of clairvoyance, and recourse to mediums all conceal a desire for power over time, history, and in the last analysis, other human beings, as well as a wish to conciliate hidden powers. 
They contradict the honor, respect, and loving fear that we owe to God alone. For a fuller discussion of this passage, listen to episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. But here I'll note a few things because the paragraph is carefully phrased. The fundamental thing it says for our purposes is that all forms of divination are to be rejected, and it effectively defines divination as any practice falsely supposed to unveil the future. So if a method doesn't give you a reliable way of learning about the future, whatever method it is, you shouldn't be using it. That's not to say that you can't predict the future. You can. We make predictions all the time, and we have things like weather forecasts and financial forecasts. But to keep it from being divination, your method needs to give you better-than-chance information. It doesn't have to be perfect, you know, weather and financial forecasts certainly aren't. But if it's not giving you better-than-chance info and you're trusting it, then you're being superstitious, and it counts as divination. Based on the modern scientific understanding, the kinds of astrological calculations that Nostradamus was doing do not give you better-than-chance information about the future, and so today they'd be regarded as superstitious, as would other practices Nostradamus engaged in. Does that mean God couldn't help Nostradamus learn some things about the future, either by natural abilities or by supernatural help? No, God reaches people where they are, and so a person who has some superstitious beliefs can still be the recipient of divine revelation. For example, St. Hildegard of Bingen, who is a doctor of the church, had visions that appear to have been of supernatural origin. But if you read her books, it's also clear that her ideas reflected the ones that were in circulation in her day, and so they include some things that would be considered superstitious from a modern perspective. Thus, if you read her Physica, which is a work on health and healing, you'll find her saying this about how you can use emeralds to help sick people. The emerald grows in the wee hours of morning at sunrise, when the sun is powerfully placed in its orbit, traversing its route. Then the natural vigor of the earth and grasses is especially lively, the air still cold, the sun hot. Therefore, the emerald is powerful against all human weakness and sickness, since the sun readies it, and since all its matter is of the vitality of the air. Whence, one who ails in his heart, stomach, or side should have an emerald with him. It will heat up his flesh, making him better. If this person is so beset by pestilences which cannot restrain their commotions, he should place an emerald in his mouth, so it becomes wet from his saliva, and the saliva heats up from the stone. He should repeatedly place it on and take it from his body. The sudden pestilential attacks will cease, without a doubt. When someone tormented by epilepsy falls, put an emerald in his mouth while he is lying prostrate. It will revive his spirit. After he gets up and takes the stone from his mouth, he should look at it intently and say, Just as the breath of the Lord filled the whole earth, so may his grace fill the house of my body, so that it can never be moved. He should do this in the morning for the next nine days, and he will be cured. He should always have that stone with him, and look at it every morning while saying those words, and he will be healed. One who has great pain in his head should hold it near his mouth and warm it by his breath so that it becomes damp from his breath. He should rub it so dampened on his temples and forehead. Then he should put it in his mouth, and holding it in his mouth for a little while, he will be better. 
Now, I'm quite sure that geologists would not agree with St. Hildegard that emeralds form in the ground in the wee hours of the morning at sunrise. I'm sure that physicists wouldn't agree that emeralds are drawing power from the sun and the vitality of the air when they form, since they form in igneous environments deep underground. And although I don't know of any scientific studies that have been done on this, I'm pretty sure that much or all of what she says about emeralds being able to cure pestilential attacks, epilepsy, and major headaches is not reliable. So just because someone has superstitious beliefs doesn't mean that God can't give them his grace, including private revelations. Just as I'm sure that from the perspective of 26th century science, some of our 21st century ideas today will be judged superstitious, but that doesn't stop God from giving us his graces, including private revelations. What about Nostradamus's natural instinct? Could that be a psychic power? This will depend on whether you believe that psychic abilities exist. Again, some doctors of the church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, held that people do have weak natural abilities that today we would classify as psychic. For example, Aquinas held that we have a weak ability to make probabilistic predictions about the future, which today we would classify as precognition. He called it natural prophecy to distinguish it from the supernatural prophecy that God gives. Today, the scientific evidence for the existence of psychic powers is mixed and disputed. Some hold that we have good evidence that such abilities exist, and some hold that we don't. From the faith perspective, though, that's really a matter for reason to sort out. What does the scientific evidence say? Okay, Jimmy, that then brings us to our preliminary bottom line. What is your preliminary bottom line? On Nostradamus. Nostradamus is an interesting figure. His prophecies are often widely misunderstood and misapplied, but that doesn't mean there's nothing to them. From the faith perspective, it could be that Nostradamus had a mix of things going on. Some of it may have been superstitious, some of it could have been divine guidance, and some of it could have been psychic. At least the faith perspective allows such a combination of things to be taking place in his case. Whether it was taking place is a matter that we'll need to sort out from the reason perspective. Until then, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer the listener on this topic? We'll have a link to Stefan Gerson's book, The Prophecies. This is the Penguin edition, and it's a dual language edition, so you can see the French and the English in parallel texts. We'll also have Stefan Gerson's book, Nostradamus, How an Obscure Renaissance Astrologer Became the Modern Prophet of Doom. <laughs> we'll have Peter Lemassurier's book, Nostradamus Bibliomancer, Hildegard of Bingen's book, Physica, which is fascinating reading, even if it's, you know, not modern science. We'll also have links to uh, an article on Nostradamus, to the Old Farmer's Almanac website, information about the Index of Forbidden Books, how emeralds actually form according to science, <laughs> and a live science piece on the attempt to connect Nostradamus to 9-11. Okay, excellent. So as promised, we have mysterious feedback this time on the Georgia Guidestones. And let's start with the feedback from Bubba on Facebook, who writes, This is not far from where I live, and I pass it often. Can't wait to listen to this. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode, Bubba. And it's fascinating to hear some uh, from somebody who lives down near the Guidestones and sees them regularly. 
Ben on Facebook writes, great episode. First of all, I love how you dove deep into the facts and the positions put forward by R.C. Christian and called out the evangelical documentary team that tried to make him look like a monster and also used immoral methods to find out Christian's identity. Sounds a lot like what a lot of people do today when trying to take down their enemies, rather than studying them and using logic to look into their positions and whether they are moral or not. I also was interested because Herbert Kirsten, Robert Christian, is from Fort Dodge, Iowa. That just so happens to be my local diocese of Sioux City, Iowa. So we actually heard from folks who are at both ends of the Georgia Guidestone story, both down in Georgia and where Herbert Kirsten was from. Father Matthew wrote on Facebook, I have to say this one really changed my perspective. I'd not heard much on the Guidestones except occasional words online where they were connected to conspiracy theories, so I ended up with a vaguely New World Order view of them. Going in-depth helped clarify them. Thank you, Father Matthew. And it is uh, fascinating to dig into some of these things and find out how different what the reality can be from what you hear in the popular theorizing. Lucid Locomotive writes on YouTube, For most of these conspiracies slash mysteries, Jimmy comes to the conclusion that they're benign and not really grounded, referring to the theories on the sinister aspects, which I do respect. I wonder, though, has there ever been an episode where Jimmy has concluded or erred toward the thing being sinister or malicious in the context of a disputed topic or conspiracy theory? He's so skeptical that if he leaned that way on something, then you'd know there must be something to it. Well, I, I try to be balanced. I try to, you know, not be overly skeptical or underly skeptical. I, I you know, just try to be as clear eyed as I can with the evidence. But definitely there are sinister conspiracies. The basic definition legally of what a conspiracy is, is an agreement between two or more people to do something illegal in the future. And you could potentially broaden that a little bit to like secretly networking to your advantage, even if what you're proposing is not technically illegal, but maybe contrary to the public good. And we've done a number of episodes on things that would involve conspiracies, either in the strict sense or the looser sense. The Bilderberg group is one I'm suspicious of. Also, and this is a government one, but the actions of the ATF and the FBI regarding the Branch Davidians and Ruby Ridge were criminal conspiracies. The World Economic Forum needs to be watched. We talked about the 1934 fascist business plot. Here in the United States, that was a criminal conspiracy. And also just recently, at the time of this will have come out by the time you hear this, we talked about Operation Northwoods, which was a plan by the Joint Chiefs of Staff that would have involved doing some illegal things on American soil. Jimmy, I guess the one of the things I would say is, is there's so many conspiracy theories out there, but by their very nature of there being so many, many of them are probably not going to be true. So that's correct. But yeah. when when we do hit one that there is strong evidence for, yes. we want to we want to mention that exactly. And, we, and we've devoted multiple episodes to that. And I think Lucid Locomotive is right. When Jimmy is suspicious, listen. <laughs> All right. <laughs> then our next one is Sarah on Patreon, who says, "I very much enjoyed the Georgia Guidestones episodes. I found myself agreeing with some of Kirsten's ideas, particularly the importance of a stable family unit and keeping marriages together." I'm also intrigued by his thoughts on having politicians actually trying to help their citizens instead of spewing ideals that they themselves do not follow. I also agree that there are too many people who expect handouts from the government and take advantage of these so they don't have to work. I do agree that those who are capable of working should. I have no problem with helping those who really need it, but just allowing some to remain on welfare is actually doing more harm than good. 
If Christian said any of those things today, he'd be completely ripped apart by the media. Where I disagreed with Christian's ideas was in regard to population control. He completely disregards the Catholic attitudes of the dignity of all persons and openness to life. I find it interesting that he upholds the importance of marriage in the family, but not the complete freedom of parents to discern their family size without any outside opinions other than God's. I think p people are so much more than a drain on the Earth's resources. Most parents probably will practice responsible parenthood, but even if they don't, we shouldn't tell them how many kids they can or should have. Well, I, I agree with Sarah very definitely that if Kirsten said many of the things he said, he would be ripped apart by the media today, especially in the last 10 to 12 years. I mean, it's, it's, the media has been biased all the way down through history on, in one way or another. And in the last 10 to 12 years, they have, or even longer than that, they have just completely stopped pretending to be neutral. And many elements in the media would be very hostile to the kind of traditional values that Kirsten had on many things. When it comes to his views on population control, I agree that and he wasn't draconian on this. He like didn't advocate forced abortions and things like that. But he did advocate more influence than from society and the government than I think is appropriate. I wouldn't say that there's no role for social discussion about, OK, here we are in Hong Kong. We have this dense population and very limited space. How many kids is a good idea? to have here. Now, it still needs to be left up to the parents. But, you know, there I can see there can be situations where it can be reasonable to have a societal discussion about such things, including like, hey, we're underpopulated. Let's have more children so we don't have a demographic winter. <laughs> yes, that actually is a conversation that needs to be had. Martin Reynolds on YouTube writes, wow, just finished listening. I will become a contributing member. You make this and other subjects and mysteries clear balanced, interesting, and even fun. I wonder if there's an award, an internet award? You and your show may be nominated. I've not heard such high quality and balanced information from one source. Thanks, and know that you're making a difference and influencing open-mindedness along with sharing the good news. God bless and make it a great day, gentlemen, and anyone else behind the scenes of these productions. Thank you so much, Martin. We appreciate the kind words, and we appreciate your support because it's uh, patrons that make the show possible. And uh, I think there are like podcast awards out there or something like that, uh, but I haven't uh, paid a lot of attention to those, uh, frankly. But uh, hey, if you want to nominate us, we, we will gladly accept nominations whenever those come up. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, since we were talking about Nostradamus, who is an astrophile, if not an astrologer, I thought we'd uh, talk about some recent astronomical discoveries, what we've learned since Nostradamus's day. One of them we'll have a link to is a short video on what if Dark matter is responsible for dark energy. Dark matter is the matter that scientists think is out there in the universe. We can't see it, which is why it's called dark. It's invisible, and it apparently only interacts with normal matter through gravity. Dark energy, and we talked about both of these in a previous episode, but dark energy is thought to be a force that's causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate. And so we've got these two big mysteries in science. Well, now there's a proposal that maybe it's really just one mystery. Maybe the dark matter is responsible for the acceleration of the universe. So could be one 
one thing responsible for both phenomena. So check out the video. Also, there is a new theory to explain the Martian so-called spiders. One of the things that satellites have revealed about Mars, you know, the orbital ones that have been mapping its surface, is there are these really strange looking structures. They are on the ground and they branch out in this weird organic looking way. And they've been compared to spiders and trees, but they really don't look like anything we have here on Earth very much. And so there's a new theory to explain what those are as a geological formation. And, uh, you know, uh, just like we can send probes to into space to study planets like Mars, space can send things to us. And if you've ever wondered, wow, I wonder how much stuff falls in from space every year, turns out... 5,200 tons of space dust fall on Earth every year. So got a number there, 5,200 tons of it. No wonder I have to vacuum so much my house. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, household dust is made out of Mm -hmm. other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. I know what it is. It doesn't bear thinking about too much. All right. So that's it from us this time. We shouldn't shouldn't leave people hanging on that. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Bug poop. Bug poop, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it from us on that note. What do you think of Nostradamus? What are your theories about Nostradamus and his remarkable predictions? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, or by sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or send a tweet to at mys underscore world, the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we'll look at Nostradamus from the reason perspective and see what we can determine about whether he did or didn't have the ability to predict the future. Also, we'll be looking at the secret technique he may have been using that would unlock the real meaning of many of his prophecies. Excellent. Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>